seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is a ritual. Is there any idea more delightfully paradoxical than a chaos magic? order. Chaos is, as Hakim Bey poetically described it, the primordial uncarved block, soul-worshipful monster, inert and spontaneous, more ultraviolet than any mythology, like the shadows before Babylon. The original, undifferentiated oneness of being, still radiating serene as the black penance of assassins, random and perpetually intoxicated. And yet, From that unruly anarchy, order emerges. Complex constellations, dazzling patterns spun from the tangled string lights of synchronicity, creating connections across space and through time. Magic, of course, serves the role of the mysterious middleman, the arbiter of these two energies, the fulcrum on which the balance forever teeters. Speaking with Swedish occultist Carl Abrahamson, illuminated this idea for me like never before. The Temple of Psychic Youth was, among many things, a chaos magic order. Emerging from the wild and influential mind of Genesis Peorage and their 1980s musical project, Psychic TV, the Temple of Psychic Youth, commonly called Topi, was a mail-order magical experiment in chaotic praxis and collaborative art. Yet, for that chaos to thrive, there had to be an accompanying order folks serving as central organizing entities and engaging in the archiving, Xeroxing, physical cutting and pasting, which kept these communities intact. Carl Abrahamson served as the head of TopiScan, the primary node for Topi in Scandinavia, and later Topi Europe, as well as the Swedish OTO and the Church of Satan. In all of these roles, the occult, that which is hidden or obscure, was made less hidden and more accessible through Carl's efforts. Now, that isn't to say Carl was revealing these groups' magical secrets or bringing on corporate sponsors, but that rather, if there's no one booking the meeting hall, sending out flyers, and answering the mail, the magical order ceases to exist. That order is essential. I found this paradoxical energy embodied in not just Carl's official responsibilities, but his very person. Watching the many lectures he's recorded and made available through his website, I found him to be an incredibly organized and methodical speaker. And yet, this is a man with deep roots in the cut-up technique, in which texts and other material are cut up and rearranged at random to reveal new meanings and hidden patterns. Again, order emerging from chaos. Global Occulture, a portmanteau of occult and culture, has changed significantly since Carl first got involved in the early 80s. Whereas a culture once existed at the fringes and the seeker's work was in finding the few signals and scant resources that could lead them into this hidden underground, today we are all adrift in a deluge of overwhelming information. The primary work of a culture today has shifted to gathering, recording, clarifying, and shaping reliable resources into ordered patterns for seekers to cling to amidst all of this ephemeral digital chaos. Carl has been a mover and shaker in both Swedish and global occult communities for decades, and today he continues that work as a historian, engaged with ideas that reach back to the Earth's earliest civilizations, while also preserving the legacies of the giants of contemporary culture, like Genesis Peorage, who only recently left this plane. And so now, in a conversation held at the crossroads of past and present, we'll hear from Carl Abrahamson about that darkest of arts, how to order a culture. Hey, Carl. Hi there. 
Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you very much. What's our magic word going to be today? It's going to be uh, halation, the, the second half of inhalation and exhalation. Ooh, okay. Halation, I like it. So yep. on the count of three, everyone take a big halation and say it with us. One, two, three. Halation. Okay. Why halation? I don't know. It just came up um, yeah. as uh, because I have a similar favorite word in Swedish, mm-hmm. which actually, um, it's so beautiful. It's one of my favorite words ever. Uh, and it's basically the meaning of the word in English is breath. You know, mm-hmm. breath can be, you know, good breath, bad breath, but it's also the actual breathing process. Right. And in, in Swedish, it's called andedrekt, andedrekt mm-hmm. which basically means clothing of the spirit and i find it so incredibly uh poetic in a way so when you mentioned that you know word i thought of the swedish word that i like the most Mm -hmm. but then you know breath doesn't really qualify so what about inhalation yeah but that's not really cool because then exhalation will feel left out you know (laughs) go for halation you gotta have both Yeah. yeah um i've been teaching myself swedish for I think something like 10 or 11 months now. And uh, I was noticing that pattern where my Duolingo app was teaching me the word for spirit and spiritual, and then also the verb to breathe. And I was like, ah, there is a connection here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take a big deep breath and get into it. Um, You have a very fascinating career in occult and culture and the wonderful blend that we call a culture. Um, where did this all start for you? It started uh, earlier than the actual, you know, occult stuff. I think it mm-hmm. started out with uh, being interested in uh, non-mainstream culture, you know, underground yeah. culture. Uh, my first real uh, intake was probably comics. Okay. And then it was, it was not like the normal comics, uh, you know, Marvel and, and that kind of stuff. It was more like American underground comics and French yeah. science fiction, sexy stuff and, you know, just um, odd stuff. Uh, and that love of the image uh, drifted with me into the love of movies, of course, and, mm-hmm. and um, loving, you know, offbeat cinema, cult cinema. And the same with music, you know, just like... Yeah. Uh, avant-garde music on one hand, sort of highbrow, and then the low-life stuff with really raunchy rock and roll and sort of uh, psychedelic music in general. So that was like the um, foundation. I wouldn't say that I'm a contrarian, but I certainly like to be outside of the mainstream, outside of the main clique mm-hmm. and their you know, b- bad taste, basically. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, attitude followed me into the teenage years when um, I became interested in um, all kinds of hocus pocus, you know, mm-hmm. serious occultism, pop occultism. Um, at that time, we're talking about early 80s, I would say there were great yeah. book- bookstores in Stockholm, you know, had uh, a bit of everything, you know, occult and this kind of more uh, extreme literature and avant garde yeah. stuff. So, I basically formatted myself in a way by by uh, trusting my intuition and making sure that I not only read the book but also you know tried to find out some information about the author or the band or the filmmaker you know uh, and kind of a, a cultural detective work in a way yeah. and that creates a kind of a, uh, a great back cultural backpack and then when you delve into the occult I had that same active approach right. to you know be networking and uh, ordering book lists because this was, of course, pre, pre-internet. pre So it was more more work, but also more fun in a way. Things were a little bit more valuable because you had to hunt yeah. them down. You couldn't Absolutely. just download Absolutely. a zip file and then go, all right, well, that's every book in the bookstore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I think that that uh, it brought me into this gray area, you know, with industrial music and the Temple mm-hmm. of Psychic Youth. And it was all meshed, you know, there was this great intellectual environment that also carried a lot of art history and also occultism. And, right. and of course, you find the, the key people, you find LaVey, you find Crowley. And I, I started getting the into... The breadcrumb trail. Yeah, 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 yeah. And sort of getting into to that um, stuff. And I think I've never left. My at- attitude today is probably a bit different because I've been through the mm-hmm. system in a way, uh, been through certain phases. Uh, but my interest today is um, in part uh, my own activity, my own active 
uh, work and experimentation. And then also, I would say this thing that I call magical anthropology is a real solid interest in me and has been for decades, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to scratch the surface very much to find that each culture, each historical period, um, there's magic uh, in all human uh, endeavors, you know. Yeah. And, and that's true for even the, the most, you know, devoutly religious or or the uh, religion of scientism, whatever. There, there's magic in that too, and magical thinking. So it's, it seems to be inherent in in, uh, in the human nature, basically. It's an and essential that, human activity. It's just absolutely. what we do. Mm -hmm. And, and that I, feel, I find that so interesting, and uh, uh, we'll probably never tire of that. So yeah. I'm just immersed. I think I'm not so immersed in this kind of um, cultural networking as I mm -hmm. used to be. Uh, I am more on my own, yet paradoxically... I am therefore more out in the world by proxy with the books, you know, and lectures and stuff like that. Hey, you're on a Wizards podcast right now as we speak. That's right. <laughs> so, so basically, I think that um, uh, the core interest has always been the same. It's uh, in part the self-transformation bit, but it's also the cultural cloak, right. what you could call the culture, that is around these cores, my core, your core. So, yeah, I think that's the, the short version of the story. So I, I want to touch on something you just said, because I think it's really one of the key distinctions that's changed in culture in the last uh, few decades. I'm about 20 years younger than you, so I got a glimpse of this. Yeah. But there's what I call like the multiverse experience of going into the music shop, where when you've got enough money to buy one album and you walk in and like, what do I remember that I like? What have I been looking for? What's in stock? And then you leave with that record and you don't have Spotify. You don't have a million other things. Mm -hmm. That record becomes a gateway. And if you get the right one, you know, if there's something in the liner notes that says, hey, check out our catalog or mm -hmm. hey, here's some books we liked, that can send you off on a whole different journey that if you bought a different record, you wouldn't be on. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that's the thing. I perceive that many people in my, um, not gang, but you know, sort of acquaintances and friends in mm -hmm. Stockholm, they had the similar attitude. You, know, right. you became sort of fanatic about what you liked and thereby you found by detective work and, and hopefully some kind of osmosis too, yeah. uh, clues in this little puzzle uh, that would lead you on to new experiences. And, and it really worked. And I mean, punk fashion, you know, I would go to a show and I'd see someone and they'd have a patch and I'm like, huh, crass. Okay, mm -hmm. let me go look that up next time I'm in the store. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's a trail. Yeah, I'm curious fun. because, uh, you know, um, so many Swedes speak incredible English and pride themselves on that. So that opens up a whole lot of other culture. But I'm curious at this time, were you finding mainly music and culture that was from outside of Sweden? Or was there a vein of this that was distinctly Swedish as well? Well, I'm sure there was, um, yeah. and still is, but it's so minuscule. Mm. You know, it's such a small country. And uh, this, the Swedish psychology or the Swedish mind frame or mindset mm. is basically as a clever emulation. You know, mm. whether you take the, the big, really big brands, you know, ABBA, IKEA, yeah. Uh, whatever, Spotify, it's like taking cool ideas, cool sounds, cool whatevers, and then you repackage it for a ma mainstream market. And it's great. It's good quality. It's mm -hmm. fun. It's functional. You know, uh, everyone loves ABBA. Everyone has something from Ikea. Uh, <laughs> but there's really nothing that's uh, hyper original. You know, mm -hmm. it's like very, very seldom uh, something comes up. And then usually that's tied in with... Uh, you know, tragedy, you know, the misunderstood genius kind of thing. Sure. Um, so I realized this very early on and I, I looked abroad, I looked outside of the box and, and uh, I've always been a diligent networker in the sense that, you know, um, if these people in, in uh, America or in the UK or wherever, they are doing things that I find interesting, I'll write to them instead of, of sort of trying to find find the others in Sweden, because yep. the others aren't really in Sweden. You know, we're good consumers and good repackagers, mm -hmm. but, but it's not, I think people are in general too well off. It's a complacent yeah. culture, you know, and I, I shouldn't complain and I'm not complaining. I think that's great, you know, but if you want a little bit of edge, a little bit of, um, I don't know, emotional vendetta in a way, mm -hmm. you have to compensate because you've experienced something 
that creates usually much more interesting art. Yeah, I, I grew up in Massachusetts in the punk scene, and we always had a lot of respect for the kids that were up in Maine because it's, you know, several hour drive to come down to Boston for a show and bands hardly ever get up there. So they had to just build their own scene on their own, yeah. which meant, you know, if the band's playing, everybody's showing up. You're not going, eh, I don't know. I'm tired of that band. It's like, nope, we, we've got to keep this going. So, mm. uh, yeah, I think sometimes that scarcity and remoteness forces you to be a little yeah. bit more um, tenacious about these. Yeah, things. yeah. Uh, so when, um, let's go with the, the psychic youth, uh, uh, thread first, when were you exposed to, uh, that vein of culture and how did you personally get involved? Uh, well, that's, that's, um, uh, had to do with music originally, mm -hmm. you know, there was this general thing because, you know, uh, everyone heard about Crowley and LaVey and, you know, like the real occult stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then there was parallel to this in the late seventies and early uh, 80s, there was the, the industrial music scene, you know, yep. with Robin Gristle and then with Psychic TV, and then of course with the Temple of Psychic Youth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like TG a lot, and of course I followed over into the world of Psychic TV, and then I, you know, saw these bulletins and this information and, and all the Psychic Television videos that were really interesting to me. Uh, so I became a subscriber first, basically getting their newsletters and buying a few pamphlets and, bo and books and, you know, stuff like that. And, um, I found it very, very interesting uh, because it was new. It was yeah. not dusty. It was not arcane. It was a, uh, both a reformulation of old stuff, but it was also a new formulation of new stuff. Right. Um, and weaving in, sort of merging uh, Austin Osman Spare with Geisen and Burroughs. It was you know, like, I understood back then that this is really fresh. This is really uh, cool. So, so I, I went with that and I got more and more uh, engaged. I met Jen for the first time in 1986 uh, that's when i had my music fanzine called lollipop writing okay. music and movies and stuff um and uh, then i sort of felt that uh, these people are doing something very very exciting and and also very magical and you could feel it uh, so i got uh, involved uh, with becoming uh, like a scandinavian node or access mm -hmm. point and then also working more and more with production of, of uh, a lot of things like newsletters, printed matter, books, records, cassettes, film screenings, and then gradually growing to handle the administration for uh, for Topi Europe, as it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it went on up until 1991 when it sort of imploded. Jen uh, got tired of it. I got tired of it. Tom Banger in the US got tired of it. Yeah. And, and it sort of fizzled out interesting first phase of 10 years that was suddenly gone in a way uh, and we, we actually had a, an evening yesterday at um, morbid anatomy mm -hmm. with Tom banger and we talked about these things whether it has a, any kind of value today and of course it does but yeah. that, that doesn't mean that one needs to resuscitate or re revive it uh, one can just cherry pick what was good about it and maybe toss that out into the ether and see who runs with that kind of baton yeah. Um, so it was a very formative time. And uh, in that formative time, I also became more and more serious about studying and practicing. So I delved into um, uh, the OTO. Mm -hmm. I stayed in the OTO for 30 years and worked Crowley system in a way. And and then, of course, parallel to that, there was also the the satanic, you know, becoming friends with LaVey and kind of ang anger and, and uh, just... Um, uh, I've led kind of a charmed life. Yeah, I, I I don't know what happened early on. I guess I was industrious, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I was um, not like the regular kind of heavy metal guy, mm -hmm. uh, but just more like this upper middle class guy with with glasses from Sweden, you know, <laughs> polite and you know. <laughs> so I must have been like a a rare bird in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, but that really worked to my advantage and opened up many many doors. Uh, and for instance, the um, one thing that still remains, uh, the Fenris Wolf, my, my cultural journal, uh, started out as basically a topi fanzine, mm -hmm. uh, but it's still going strong. You know, we're up to eleven issues now, and they're all fat books. Yeah, and working on new ones. So the the spirit remains. The the, the outer structure doesn't, but spirit definitely remains.
Yeah, and I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. And I like your acknowledgement of that. Um, yeah, this is funny that a couple of these Swedish series episodes have been touching on punk rock and DIY culture and these sorts oh. of things. And it really is mind-blowing how much an individual can impact a scene, not even just their local regional scene, but even a global scene. Just yeah. being the person who's running the catalog or who's putting out the fanzine or who's got the little distro table at the show saying, hey, I've got a bunch of imported records. Do you guys want to buy some? Here we go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that hard work isn't glamorous. It's archiving, it's cataloging, it's doing inventory. Mm -hmm. But it makes that possible in a way that is more alive, I think, than just ordering a product off Amazon and Absolutely. it gets shipped to, shipped to your doorstep. It's kind of uh, like in a Hindu system or a yoga system, it would be, you know, bhakti yoga. It's mm -hmm. like devotion. Right, uh, service, yeah. To an idea, I wouldn't say to a guru, but to, to an idea and a group perhaps. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the investment is not necessarily money at all. It's just like, you know, love and hard work. And that yeah. can really change a lot of things. Yeah, and I think um, we've kind of had a shift where one of the things that I've noticed is the, the word sellout used to be a slur. Like, oh, don't sell out, or those guys are sellouts. And then we've switched to, oh, I want to be an influencer. Like, my dream is yeah. to have a vibrator company give me a handful of dollars to convince my followers that that's a good yeah. product to buy. Yeah, yeah. And I think with that is a glorification of the individual where so many of these other things, you know, if you're writing the zine, you're writing it because you're obsessed with these bands. You want a chance to talk to Genesis Peorage or Sonic Youth or whoever it might be. Mm -hmm. And like, that's that excitement. It's not the, here's my face on the cover of the zine all about me. Right. And I think the other thing that was so interesting in the way that you talked about it is, Every generation has heroes from a previous generation. Yeah. And then there's a difference between looking at their work and drawing inspiration into the present. I was profoundly influenced by Robert Anton Wilson. Oh. And if you read Robert Anton Wilson, he's talking about Crowley and, uh, of course, Bisky and a bunch of other figures. But he was doing something new. And mm -hmm. I think that's a very important thing in magical culture. What is just looking to do history, which is a great pursuit in its own. Mm -hmm. What is sort of a nostalgic reimagining where, okay, we're going to make pretend that we're druids and we're going to have these rituals that we're, you know, kind of researching, kind of inventing. And where is the fresh, fertile soil where, hey, we're going to do something new and exciting? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting that you men mentioned uh, Robert Anton Wilson because I quoted him yesterday in this talk we had about the old uh, uh, Topi spirit or to Topi yeah. word in the sense that... Um, writing Illuminatus and, and mm -hmm. uh, this thing where he wanted to apply this kind of Joycean, um, I don't know, it's not a technique, but a Joycean spirit in a way, where mm -hmm. the puzzle isn't presented by some kind of omniscient uh, narrator mm -hmm. uh, as being solved. It's a puzzle that is forever waiting to be solved. You know, yeah. there's <laughs> no solutions in sight. And I think that was so um, wonderful when it comes to this uh, kind of... Uh, I don't know, a spiritual adventure in a way, or magical adventure, because mm. it never ends. You yeah. know, there's so many analogies to that that way of looking at literature, for instance, uh, in the sense that um, when you feel that you have come to a point and you feel satiated or wise, whatever, that basically mm -hmm. just means that you become inert. And that's right. a big challenge. Um, and I'm working with that a lot because, uh, you know, we're leading a good life and, you know, life's been good and, and all that kind of stuff, but but you know it's dangerous to become yep. too set in 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 uh, our ways, and therefore to tie in with the other things that you talked about, uh, I think it's very important for me to uh, something that I have done these past years. Basically, it's uh, uh, paying back to my mentors, but mm -hmm. it, that also means paying forward to future generations. And when I was younger, I couldn't see myself in that position. That comes with age. Now that my mentors are gone, right. they're, they are physically dead and gone. Yeah. Uh, but I can honor them by, you know, documentaries or writing books about them or, or uh, keep posting about them. And, and um, then I will become, or I am, some kind of node now for much younger people uh, who are interested in exactly the same things, but they can't connect directly 
to the people right. I connected with. So it's kind of like a trail uh, of a lineage of, of lineage and, mm-hmm. and just energy flowing. Uh, because uh, even if you go back, um, you know there are these definitive uh, real influencers in a way you can never escape Burroughs. You know, yeah. <laughs> of concepts and you know mm-hmm. uh, changing the language and actually you know taking language language apart. Yeah. But of course, there were other people who had had that same kind of paranoid mind frame and ex- will to experiment before him. You know, it goes mm-hmm. way way back. And often, as we have seen, you know, it's very tied in with esoteric stuff. Tied in yeah. with magic, you know, um, deconstructing reality to reconstruct it. Basically, it's it's a trail. It's a, as you say, it's a lineage. It's a spirit that keeps on moving forward. And I think if we want to apply some kind of overarching cultural theory, uh, it's kind of like an immune system where the mm. great culture uh, needs to be checked. It needs to be uh, provoked. It needs yeah. to be uh, hurt to mm-hmm remain healthy you know and and you can say that works on many different levels you can say that well you know there's a police force and there's uh, medical personnel and there's uh, political discourse but there's also art in the sense uh, extreme art can become very violent and disturbing mirrors in a way to what's wrong in for instance a corrupt society Mm -hmm. or a moralistic society Um, that's very healthy you know because it creates a Again, discussion about what's what. And if you remove those immune systems, uh, defense systems, then, then um, you will, you will, the organism will die. Yeah. And what that makes me think of is uh, like more evolution and mutation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taha Desharnan wrote about this evolutionary process in this tree. And what I thought was so fascinating was these dead ends where you'll have, you know, species of elk that just get locked into this weird mutational feedback loop where the the elk with the biggest horns gets the mate. So then elks are getting bigger and bigger horns. And then for, for no real, you know, it's yeah. not helping them survive in the environment. It's just this kind of feedback loop. And yeah. now they have these massive, burdensome, curly horns that are just uh, decorative. And I think, mainstream culture does that all the time where, Mm. oh, what's the new popular thing? Let's just copy that and copy that and copy that and copy that until it's this cartoonish exaggeration. And it's on those fringes where marginal groups and people that are trying to do something different create the mutations that then, you know, eventually get absorbed back in and become mainstream. But it's that edge that I think is so uh, vital. Yeah, no, absolutely. Interesting also that, that you can't really construct these things. Uh, you know, you can't say that uh, I'm going to create a mutation. That rarely works. Right. Uh, it has to be more uh, powerful and uh, unconscious, mm-hmm. I think. And also because, uh, and I do think art is a good sort of, it's a vague term, but I mean, the art in general is a good way to mutate culture because yeah. it simply is irrational. It is unconscious. The responses are emotional uh, or should be, and thereby you can affect change in a much more thorough and deep way mm-hmm. than if you wanted to appeal, which is also in a way how the art scene is today. It's very intellectual, right? You know, it's like filled with discourse, right? <laughs> uh, but it really affects no change at all because it's just absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I think there's kind of like the surrealist party game, right? Where, you know, you write a sentence and then someone draws a picture and then somebody else writes a sentence of what that picture is. Mm-hmm. That when you have, uh, especially, you know, if you're fortunate to have it in physical space, but if you have an art scene where we're all hanging out because we're mm-hmm. friends and we all live in the city together, but I'm a painter and you're a filmmaker and that person's writing weird theories and that person's in mm-hmm. a band if the theories influence the music and then I listen to the music when I make the painting and then the painting inspires the filmmaker, suddenly we're translating those ideas and we're evolving them rapidly Absolutely. through that, uh, through that, that process. Yeah. Cause then you have a scene. Right. And, 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 and that's exactly how, how culture is, yeah. how it evolves. Yeah. So I'm curious with, um, with the different strands, let's just say OTO, uh, Levain, Satanism, and Topi, uh, were you involved in all of these uh, concurrently or did you kind of move from one to the next? And how do you feel like they were different and similar uh, as you explored them? Well, to, to me, they, w- they weren't that different because the main 
center was always myself, you know, in right. my journey of exploration or what, my quest, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and also, it, it is basically the same thing. If you disregard the structural issues, the structural whatevers, it's basically about individual liberty. Right. And that kind of empowerment. Uh, Thelma, basically, as called mm-hmm. call it, or Lave with his uh, brand of Satanism or uh, Topi, definitely some kind of uh, hardcore, almost libertarian individualism. Right. Um, and, and so it's basically all the same. And then you have different kinds of hocus pocus and mm-hmm. degrees of uh, involvement and psychodrama and, and uh, belief in symbols or disbelief in symbols. Uh, so I would say the, the, the variations or, or um, uh, differences are actually quite minor uh, because it is essentially all about the individual moving forward, learning new things that the uh, mm-hmm. uh, programmed route won't fulfill, won't deliver. You have right. to go on your own path. Uh, and, and that will be sometimes rocky, sometimes it will be nice, uh, but it will be yours to walk, you know, and no one else's. Um, that's, that's the message. And there I can feel that um, Topi, of course, that, as I said, it sort of ended, it fizzled out. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, not with a bang, but not with a whimper either. It was just like, you know, it just ended in 91. At that time, I was already initiated into the OTO. I was uh, active in communication and, and projects with with uh, LaVey and yeah. and, uh, and some other things also. So I think it was, I was just very young and energetic and, and interested in many different things. And, and then, of course, uh, then we have to define what is work. You know, uh, I did work with, for instance, translating the Satanic Bible into Swedish. So that was work that could be seen as being under the umbrella of the Church of Satan. Right. Uh, but apart from that, it was more like a friendship going on in communication. And then OTO, of course, there was a lot of work because, again, I took the position of something who, someone who built uh, an operation in Sweden uh, with that entailed administration and mm-hmm. printed matter and, and just, just what I've always done, basically. And also the, the, my own work, my own magical work in it, uh, which was very, very interesting. And then uh, with um, other things, that I've always been drawn to uh, like uh, Taoism in a way, so that was kind of mm-hmm. private studies, uh, and uh, shamanism was very, um, I wouldn't say shamanism, I mean shamanic work mm. uh, was, uh, was very important to me also, exploring that. So I think all of these things, uh, for me, was they, they were all one and the same. It was just one thing. Uh, some, some things had a different cloak than mm-hmm. things over here. But for me, it was just like uh, different kind of foods that I mm-hmm. ate in my own um, uh, magical smorgasbord. Yeah, punk, metal, and industrial all kind of flow together in a oh, similar no scene. Oh, no metal for me. No metal for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm allergic. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, well, I'm glad that you brought up this thread that unites them of uh, individualism. Because yeah. I think here in America, you know, hyper-individualism is so core to our DNA. It's it's really, yeah. it has some repercussions. But I'm curious about how do you feel like that contrasted with the environment in Sweden, with the country being more socialist at that time, especially, as well as these ideas like logum and things. Yeah. Uh, what was that like for you? Well, I think that uh, it was very good for me. Mm-hmm. And and without heading into very particular like political analyses or stuff like that. But I, I grew up in a really fantastic time because it was, you know, uh, social democracy. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, there was a big um, presence of the state in a way that I now understand what it was. But then, of course, it was just natural for me growing up. But I think it's very good. I would not like to be in a society which is like uh, too too an- anarchic or anarchistic in this kind of mm-hmm. libertarian way. No way. The the Swedish society uh, or perhaps the Scandinavian meaning kind of a so- social democratic infrastructure, you know, mm-hmm. where where the 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 state needs to be in charge of certain very very important things. Um, but there's total freedom to start whatever kind of enterprise you want. You can be a weird little Satanist, you know, in, yeah. uh, publicly. You know, there's no problem because everyone is fine. 
you know, mm-hmm. you know, free schooling, free, free uh, healthcare. And it's just like, uh, if those basic concerns or needs are met, then everyone is happier. Yeah. <laughs> but if they constantly have to fight with fang and claw to, to just uh, make ends meet or try to figure out, you know, uh, what happens if my kid gets sick and, you know, stuff right. like that, basic stuff. So I would say, you know, Hey, it's my right for my kid to get sick and die without help. Don't don't impringe on my liberty. No, don't don't mess with my disease. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So basically, it was a wonderful wonderful time. Then, of course, I think it became a little bit more. uh, It was changing uh, when I was an adult into become more like a market economy, and I'm all in favor of that too. But I still believe that the state should run the very basic things. Like of course the military and the police and 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 the hospitals and and train tracks all of these very very basic things uh, because it's simply better yeah uh, because if you have private um, uh, corporations they uh, are n- they can never uh, escape from the fact that they are not doing it for the good of the system they are doing it for a profit and when you do it for profit the result is always worse. Uh, that's not slamming people who want to have do. I, I mean, I run my own business. Of sure. course, I want to make money, uh, but that's that uh, that's on a, like a private enterprise. And you can have great companies. You can have like you know Spotify that become global and and all of that stuff. It's it's wonderful. Uh, but I think, for instance, that even that can be traced back to a social democratic uh, system in Sweden where the great what they call the Swedish musical wonder. You know, basically you can trace that back to ABBA and their uh, immense successes that created a respect for, for instance, music teaching in Swedish schools. Mm. I remember that too. It was very predominant, very present and encouraging kids to work with music. And then, of course, if you have successful Swedish bands, you will have new Swedish kids wanting to emulate the Swedish successful bands. So right. as you create a tradition of, of uh, songwriters, of, of bands, of producers, of uh, everyone, up to the abstracted level of Spotify, which is just basically like a, I don't know, a great big record player in a way. Yeah. Uh, but still, you can trace that back to that very, very a strong encouragement uh, from the social democratic system of, of young people should be doing music, you know? Well, I think in America, we have, you know, a hundred years of concerted propaganda against socialism that has tainted oh. it and equated it falsely with authoritarianism and this idea of we've got we've to cut off everybody at the neck. Like, yeah. we've got to level it out. You can't be better than anybody else. Whereas I think what you're describing is more saying, hey, we all have Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What if we just raised the base? What if we just covered more of those so each individual isn't scrambling to try and reinvent the wheel in their own care yeah. and instead has free energy, which I think is then getting us back into this more occult territory yeah. to be channeled into their creative potential and manifestation and uh, higher level functioning. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I would like to make a, a very, very strong distinction between socialism and social democracy, mm-hmm. uh, because because um, Sweden was never like a socialist country. Um, the social democracy was uh, kind of give and take situation, mm-hmm. and that's why it worked with you know uh, a strong government, a strong state on the one hand, but also a very strong industrial sector of, yeah. of uh, enterprise and corporations. And, you know, Sweden was booming uh, after the Second World War from the 60s. And that was basically the Social Democrats, the, the ruling party, uh, inviting the big business leaders and also vice versa to, you know, how do you make workers happy? Let's make them yeah. happy so they don't strike. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they get, you know, five, five weeks of vacation and they get enough money so they can have a house and a car, you know. And it's just a matter of making very sound decisions. It's not socialism. It's just right. common sense. Yeah. Uh, socialism is when you try to uh, rule mm-hmm. over individual initiative. That was never the case in, in, in Swedish social democracy. You know, everyone was free to start whatever companies and work hard with that. And, and um, I don't know. It was to, maybe you look back at your own 
<laughs> uh, youth in a way with kind of nostalgic eyes. But I do believe that it was kind of um, interesting to see that that um, things were working quite well. So I remembered when when private uh, companies started running trains on the same tracks as the Swedish. It didn't really work out <laughs> yeah. because there was no real investment. There was a financial investment, but that's not the same as wanting it to work. And there's a difference. But, um, well, first, I want to say thank you for that clarification. I think that is that's a really important distinction. Yeah. And yeah, I think that there is a difference between investment and extraction. Yeah. And when you're talking about, uh, you know, we both run our own businesses and we're providing niche services for people interested in those things. Yeah. So there's work required to provide that service and then you know, you make a living off of doing that. Mm -hmm. That's very different than something that everybody needs, which is not a, how do I make profit off this? But how do I distribute this thing that everybody needs to people in the most effective way? Yeah. So very different problems there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, coming back to kind of Swedish culture, I understand that, you know, in the beginning of the 80s, it felt like all of this was coming from other places. But through your activities with Topi and these other orgs, have you seen Swedish culture kind of grow and flourish and become more of its own its own thing? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Definitely. But in weird ways, uh, you say, you know, if you're a Christian, you could say that the Lord works in mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess it's true for, for occultism also. Uh, because what happened was that I would say when the 80s, the late 80s, uh, approaching 90s and also early 90s, it's very, very formative uh, years for, well, let's call it the scene. And yeah. the scene consisted of very young people who were like me, you know, they were uh, smart, they were attracted to different things because of different aesthetics and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Things and also very connected to to different kinds of music, and mm -hmm. basically it was all getting attention. I had a, I've never shied away. I, I talked about you know doing uh, sexual sigils on Swedish national TV <laughs> whenever nineteen eighty nine or something mm -hmm. like that. And then of course when when uh, I talked about Satanism, it's a big uh, hoopla. But it was Ooh, not scary. Like, yeah, but it was not like you know oh. You, it must be banned or he must be killed or whatever. It was just a weird guy, but strangely a Swedish weird guy. But I was doing these things quite publicly. I was seeing, you know, Temple of Psychic Youth and OTO, meaning that in Stockholm, there was kind of a small scene. Everybody knew everybody. Then there was this other uh, order called uh, Dragon Rouge uh, still around also, which was much more uh, dramatic and dark in a way, okay. definitely being more tainted by um, uh, Swedish metal music at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we were all friends. It was like occult diplomacy going yeah. on. And there were other groups also. And what happened was that, you know, what happens when an occult youth grows up? You know, well, you can say bye-bye and you can go into the corporate world, right. <laughs> thanking whatever, you know, and, and, and cherish your old occult volumes that you have still on your shelf. Or you can turn it like me into to a kind of pseudo psychotic behavior that's lasted for <laughs> decades, and then now turn it into some kind of vocation or work. Actually, uh, or you could go down the the uh, academic route, which mm -hmm. many people who were in the Scandinavian scene started going into academia, and and then there was no such thing as the study of oh you know Western esotericism. Stuff mm -hmm. like that. It was basically the history of religions. You could go into right. the history of religions uh, and then write about fringe stuff like the occult. And that changed, you know, by gradually these old occult, somebody say, these young occult people doing their uh, academic work and then growing up to become academics, you know, mm -hmm. still doing this. And now we have chairs in, you know, Amsterdam and wherever mm -hmm. where there are actually professors and, and a lot of teachers and and a lot of studies being done in this new field called, well, specifically Western esotericism. Mm -hmm. That's a direct result of, of, I would say, the Scandinavian scene at the shift between the late 80s and early 90s. Many of the key people active come from that scene. It's just mm -hmm. that they grew up and they brought the stuff with them and treated it perhaps in a more mature way. But it was still, it's still the same um, foundation. 
And I think people, once they have the means, fill in some of the gaps that frustrated them when they were younger. Yeah. Uh, we were connected through my friend Philip English, who's been on this podcast before and uh, was one of the founders of Catland. And yeah. I remember when I first walked into Catland, I was like, I've never been in a cult bookstore like this. I've mm -hmm. been in the more Llewellyn Weiser, New yeah. Age Crystal, you know, Angel Oracle deck kind of thing. Yeah. And suddenly here's all of these really nice printed grimoires that are really, you know, they they are they have an academic person who was looking at the history and saying, what did this really look like? What is the background? Mm -hmm. And that was just something that I hadn't seen before. And I think it came from people being in those other stores and going, oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. I wish we had something better than 101 prosperity magic for us yeah. to look at. Like, let's, how do we improve this and build upon this? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I think also it's a uh, part of what, what I call uh, acculturation. You know, mm. uh, where things go from being occult of, you know, could be many kinds of occult and then going into the mainstream culture. Uh, we've seen it through, you know, popular culture, mainstream movies, uh, mm -hmm. but also in this specialized kind of return to the grimoires, trying to redefine what magic is. It's a lot of activity on all these levels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Hilma of Clint uh, touring exhibition, sure. you know, most successful ever, ever. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. I think it has to do with the fact that we're in pretty dire straits. And I think right. it's the collective unconscious basically giving us all the signals, all the taints, all the colors, all the variants, uh, all the models uh, for us to simply assess as quickly as possible and see how we can use this alternative way of thinking in this problematic time that we're in. Because mm -hmm. it's obvious that the inert thinking and decision-making is leading us, as I could say, nowhere but it is actually leading us somewhere and it's not a good place yeah uh, and and uh, that i think is is fascinating and that's why i i'm not interested in that sort of old grimoire magic it's for me it's kind of uh, what do you call it a reactionary in a way looking mm -hmm. back instead of looking forward traditionalist yeah the, the yeah. magic of, of of those days uh i'm sure it still works mm -hmm. uh, but to me it seems like um instead instead of thinking about how do we get to our goal to our yeah. place, our, our, our destination, uh, then certain people will still look at vintage cars. You know, yeah. um, it's, 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 we have more important things to do than to sum up some guistic uh, uh, demon. That, that's my two cents. They, people are free to do whatever they want. I would like to uh, redefine things or actually not redefine, maybe just define new concepts in this to see smallest or lowest common denominator what mm -hmm. is it that is the magic well for me it's very much the relationship with nature mm. uh, a lot of the problems that we have wouldn't exist if we had had a holistic approach all along the way yeah that's not me pointing the finger at the monotheists although i could and have <laughs> uh, but just this division between us and greater nature is extremely unhealthy Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think the future of magic or occultism or whatever you want to call it, uh, according to me, is just dive headfirst back into greater nature. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I would say preferably, hopefully, in an enlightened state of mind and just embrace uh, what's there and try to learn from that. And, and you will be um, amply rewarded for doing that. And And if that happens on some kind of communal level, which I doubt, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, then I think uh, great things could happen mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it happened in the 60s, but then it sort of fizzled out. Uh, however, the great burst of psychedelic culture and that kind of uh, artificial enlightenment uh, did have some good positive results, including uh, ecological thinking, uh, organic foods and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. That's still re resonating today. So it is possible, but it just needs to be a, uh, an awakening that transcends the individual. Wonderfully said, and I think there's just this this kernel here that is so essential in everything you just um, you just put together that ties back to what we were saying earlier, where you know you can have a scene that's you're hanging out, you're at the show, and you're going, oh man, I just read Burroughs, it's blowing my mind, and you're talking about those ideas, and you're bringing them into the new context, as opposed yeah. to saying, oh man. I wish we were alive 20 years ago 
Burroughs was so much cooler. I'm going to write a book just like Burroughs, and you're trying to yeah. go backwards. Yeah. And, you know, no, everyone should do whatever they want in terms of their own practice. But I, too, have never been someone that wants to go try and do magic from a grimoire from the 1500s. My mm-hmm. wizardry is very playful and very psychological and tries to try and do something new. But mm-hmm. I think um, the one thing that I've seen come back into vogue is a greater appreciation of animism, of saying right. we need an ontological viewpoint that doesn't just have this Cartesian duality and doesn't just treat the world as an external object to be controlled and enslaved, yeah. and instead gives it a personification and power. And I think that taking that spirit and breathing it into this next generation is the the most valuable project that I think the occult's doing right now, not just trying to recreate uh, with exquisite detail what exactly was a Golden Dawn ritual and how do we put exactly. that back together. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Absolutely. Now, I have one last thread uh, that's just for me uh, and my curiosity, but... Um, you know, I think with some of the things that you were saying about being able to talk about sex magic on Swedish TV, and there is a very Swedish um, kind of freedom around that. It's interesting. I've been watching a ton of Swedish film and television, and the way that sexuality is shown in a natural way where it's not lurid, it's not, okay, everybody, we're going to show breasts in the next shot. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, they're naked now. Okay, that's mm-hmm. just what happens. Um but I know that you've done some uh, some writing and some lectures about Bergman and his films and their uh, magical and psychological yeah. impact. And I, I was curious if you could just, um, how has Bergman's films inspired you and where was that in the cultural milieu as you were growing up? Oh, it was very present yeah. because uh, um, I, I was born in, in 1966. And and uh, I think that's what that when he peaked, and I of course were too, I was too young, but he was such a like a massive force, almost yeah. stifling force to up and coming people. You know, uh, everyone was compared to to Bergman. And, you're in his shadow. Yeah, in the shadow. But then again, he was uh, literally a genius. But he also uh, after his uh, absolute uh, burst and heyday, which I would say like uh, all through the 60s and up until the early 70s, he drifted very much into theater. Mm-hmm. He worked with theater and, and also directed some opera and then made some some um, bigger movie productions. But he was deservedly like, looked upon like a demigod in a way mm-hmm. with, with foibles and faults and all of that stuff. And also a lot, a lot of people, of course, you know, uh, criticized him a lot. Yeah. But you can never shy away from someone's work, you know, a person can be an asshole, they often are, <laughs> but you can never shy away from the fact that that body of work is just so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I've returned to Bergman, uh, I've returned to it from mainly the perspective of filmmaker, you know, because I, I love that era, the dark, the psychological, uh, it's so brilliant, it's kind of um, amazing. Yeah. But there's other aspect that that attracts me very much today also. And it's not only true for Bergman, but in other literature from the same era and movies from the same era, basically 1940s and up until the 70s. And that's the Swedish language. You know, Mm. I grew up, uh, the Swedish language was different. And Mm -hmm. I dare say, (laughs) nostalgically, it was correct. You know, (laughs) so there are so many Anglicisms. There's so much tech stuff. Uh, going into language and and you know what can you do it's an amorphous thing but i love growing up in sweden when i did and i love returning to that uh, through for instance the the films of ingmar bergman where they speak in such a beautiful crystal clear way in a very poetic uh, correct swedish Uh, i love it it's almost like um it almost crystal, makes- crystal clear for you. Extremely challenging for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that you could you could find people like me in other cultures saying, "Oh, the Spanish of my youth was so sure, much." Sure, sure. But for me, it's almost arousing. I have to say, you know, I can yeah. watch Bergman and watch you know Sven Nyquist's beautiful cinematography and the psychological depth. But it's also the fucking language. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, so Bergman is is one of those. Uh, it's like Strindberg, you know, the author from the 19th, uh, early 20th century. Uh, it's one of those uh, bedrocks that you can never yeah. escape if you're a Swede. Yeah. 
Well, I think that psychological depth is so important. I've been reading um, some James Hillman, the neo-Jungian, and he talks about the importance of mythology in representing our pathologies. We can kind of see ourselves in these horrifying stories, you know, like there's a lot of grotesque things in there. And inspired by that, I was in like a kind of funky mood and I was like, okay, let's watch a Bergman film tonight just to kind of get something a little bit more deep. And we watched uh, Ritten, The Right, uh, his, oh, right. One of his yeah, 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 one of his uh, TV movies from the late '60s, mm-hmm. and it's all about a, a group of actors that are being held. Yeah, I know it uh, well. Obscenity, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so, just seeing all of the neuroses and things on display there, I was just struck by like you know. This was a TV movie. This was shown on television. It's not quite the distinction that we would make now between, you know, fringe culture and mainstream culture. Yeah. And I also don't want to set up past as good, all current culture is bad. Mm-hmm. But I just realized that when you have a director, when you have an auteur that is trying to explore something, you get a different result than when you have a studio system that's trying yeah. to make a product. Yeah. And I, you know, we see this a lot, but it was just one of those moments where I guess, you know, like somebody that has only had the carrots from the grocery store having an organic carrot grown on a farm and you're like, this tastes yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, that brings us to the final point portion of this podcast. Uh, what's a spell that the listeners can do to bring a little bit of your magic into your, their world? This can be anything at all. We always just want to make it something that's relatively doable. Uh, mm-hmm. so. Okay. Well, well, I would say it's, um, it's uh, fairly simple. It's very efficient mm-hmm. and it uh, doesn't require much. It requires some kind of writing equipment. So okay. I have a pen here yeah. and there's a paper you know, everybody has a pen and paper or everybody has a phone, everybody has a computer, something to write on. And and I think the spell is not uh, specific, you know, that would be almost presumptuous, but in terms of uh, how to go about uh, creating a very simple yet efficient spell is simply to, you know, take a minute to focus like in a, sh- a short but very centered meditation and mm-hmm. think about what you want to achieve. Uh, say, for instance, um, later in the week so it's no immediate gratification but something later in the week uh, that you want to have happen and then you simply write it in one sentence as if it has happened already i mean Mm -hmm. it's a classic thing many people have have, uh, worked with this Um, and i call it uh, mechtubian magic you know from the from the uh, maghrebi word from mechtub maybe it's arabic it means it is written it's very common in uh, islam that sense when you write when they write spells and they usually say that it is written mechtub you know meaning it's cemented it's done mm-hmm. it will happen because we wrote it there's power in the writing and specifically the difference being that instead of writing like a poetic I want this to happen that that's more like a poetic expression you know you write it as I became so happy when he did this or she mm-hmm. did that you know it is already taking place because you've right. written it. You know, it's it's uh, inevitable. Beautiful. I love the power of the tense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. For more of Carl's magic, you can visit carlabrahamson.com. That's Abrahamson, A-B-R-A-H-A-M-S-S-O-N.com. Carl, as will not be surprising to you, has a wonderfully organized website where you can find information about all of his projects, current and from the past, as well as links to lectures and a whole bunch of other resources that are absolutely wonderful. And Carl just so happens to be married to American psychoanalyst and occultist Vanessa Sinclair, who we will be speaking to on an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. And so... As we finish today's episode, I hope that this podcast and this ritual can serve a little bit of a similar organizing function. I still don't know how this podcast will truly grow in the lengths of time in which it exists, but for now, it's organizing the reality of my upcoming Swedish adventure, creating the connections, and who knows what those will lead to. And for future listeners, I hope that this can continue to spread out to create networks of possibility 
the way the magical orders of the past once did, but in new ways for the new challenges of the new generation. So as we go deeper into this aeon of chaos and confusion, just remember, you're fucking magic. Balance the chaos in your life with a little bit of order. And in the order that feels like it's oppressive, remember, you too can be an agent of chaos. <laughs>